You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Before we begin, a warning. The content of this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. For years now, we have used the word reckoning to describe efforts to root out the deplorable conduct of some hockey players, as well as the organizations accused of enabling them. A reckoning for Canada's hockey culture is usually how it's phrased. But much of it, so far, has been a reckoning of perception, changing the way we think and talk about the culture or the players and organizations. And very little of it has been a reckoning in the real world of courts, facts, and most importantly, consequences. That's about to change forever. Five players from the 2018 Canadian men's world junior team are reportedly facing sexual assault charges. The players have not been formally named. They have reportedly been given an unspecified period of time to turn themselves into police in London, Ontario. These charges and the names of the players facing them will be revealed in the coming days. In court, the results of a police investigation that was reopened years after it was closed will be presented. It will likely be ugly. One of the players has already surrendered. The rest of the players will likely be NHL regulars, household names to fans of the teams they play for, former stars of the highest level of junior hockey facing prison time. What has slowly happened over the past almost two years as more and more details about this six-year-old incident have become public? Now, in a courtroom and beyond, is this really the reckoning hockey has been waiting for? Or is the culture that led to these allegations too entrenched to shift? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Laura Robinson is an investigative reporter and the author of a book called Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport. Uh, that book came out, what is it, more than 25 years ago, Laura, and we're still having this discussion. Yes, that's correct, Jordan. 1998. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, what I guess the entire uh, hockey world will be focused on this week and beyond. Um, we've spoken about it before, some major developments over the past week or so, and maybe just to uh, unfortunately refresh everyone's memory to begin, what is alleged, uh, because nothing's been proven in court here, to have happened on June 19th, 2018 in London, Ontario? The 2018 Canadian men's junior hockey team had won the world championships that year. And every year, uh, Hockey Canada holds the ho hockey gala. It's a big fundraiser, and the team was there. Most of the team was there. That evening in a bar, one of the hockey players met a young woman. They went back to his room. And what she didn't know is that there would be seven more, minimally, seven more players showing up in that room. The next morning, she disclosed to her uh, parents and they went to the police. Uh, there was an investigation at that time. The police closed it without laying charges. But the young woman also filed a civil suit against Hockey Canada and the Canadian 
hockey league as well as eight uh, junior players. Luckily, Rick Westhead at TSN obtained that notice of civil claim that she filed and did some, I think, really excellent research and broke the story in June 2022 that Hockey Canada had quietly paid that suit off on behalf of the players. And we don't even know if the players even knew about the suit. And they were just going to go on with their multi-million dollar lives, basically, their professional hockey player lives, Hmm. with no consequences whatsoever. And perhaps even bigger than that, no acknowledgement by Hockey Canada and the CHL that there was a very serious systemic cultural problem going on, which they all know about, which is a rape culture within junior hockey. And soon after that, another story broke about the 2003 junior hockey team in Halifax. Uh, right. Uh, a video shared with uh, certain journalists, not, I was not one of them, showing a young woman unconscious surrounded by a number of hockey players uh, allegedly having a sex with her, which is hard to imagine you could consent when you're unconscious. Mm. Uh, when I did my book, which, as you mentioned, came out in 1998, this practice of a gang sexual assault was basically normalized amongst junior hockey players. And Hockey Canada and the CHL have known for a long, long time that this has occurred. And uh, had this a particular lawsuit not um, being disclosed publicly, we would probably still be in that situation. It was, and now we're in a different and I guess unprecedented situation here for this kind of thing in Canada. Can you explain uh, what we've learned, uh, what has happened here over the last week? First of all, we have to go back to the end of 2022 when uh, the Globe, again, lots of good journalism on this, The Globe disclosed that they had obtained a warrant from the London police who reopened the case. And uh, the London police were arguing uh, in front of a judge that they needed to access more evidence uh, that they hoped to obtain from the players. And they were asking permission to uh, obtain more evidence because they believed that sex crime charges, there were grounds for those. And We waited since the end of 2022 till last week in January 2024 for that to happen. And then all of a sudden, the Globe again broke the story that five of the players from the 2018 junior national team had been summoned by the London City Police and that they were going to be arrested on sex crime charges uh, on uh, Sunday, uh, January 28th, 2024, the first of those five players, Alexander Fermentin, appeared at uh, London police headquarters and was charged. I want to get into what this means for uh, the sport in this country, uh, the players allegedly involved and, and what happens now. But first, maybe, you know, when you just spoke about the London police, you mentioned that they reopened their investigation, but that it was initially closed in like 2019. And you've kind of talked about a civil suit. Like, How did it take so long, almost, I guess, six years now uh, since the attack allegedly happened for this to come before the courts and result in charges? Like what was going on during that time? First of all, many sexual assault cases do take this long. Mm. There's a way of stalling things, especially if you have good criminal lawyers. And 
the courts generally are overwhelmed uh, with many cases, not just sexual assault cases. So cases generally take a long time. And uh, collecting evidence to the point that you believe that you have evidence that would show that a sexual assault occurred can also take a long time because in these cases, most of the witnesses are the other players. Right. So you have witnesses who are teammates, and that that can be very difficult for uh, the best of investigators. So these do take time. However, I do think that one of the reasons this has come to fruition is because it has the lens of media, which is really important. And I hope for the sake of the young woman in London and the sake of other many victims, actually, of sexual assault, that that we have a timely court appearance and hearing for this uh, so it doesn't continue to drag. You mentioned Alex Formentin surrendered uh, to police and was charged. Um, Who is he? What was he charged with? And what might those charges tell us about um, what we can expect from the case or from other players? The London police actually haven't disclosed the exact um, description of the charges. Okay. So that's coming on February 5th. I have a feeling London is going to be a very busy city uh, in front of the uh, police department and in the police department on, on February 5th. It's an international story. And we'll hopefully receive more information at that time from the London police. And he was one of uh, a number of of junior players who were allegedly to have been in that room in the hotel, the Armory Hotel room that evening when the alleged uh, gang assault was to have occurred. I know we are not going to name anyone else here because nobody else has been officially charged, but there is a ton of speculation uh, flying around the hockey world right now. And can you explain how that speculation came to be and what people are examining? Well, I think people are are doing a sort of a, a, a game of attrition. We know the names of everyone on the uh, 2018 junior Canadian men's team. There's, right. That's limited. Some of those people were not even in the country let alone in London. So they clearly showed that they were not in London that day. So that knocked off more people. And I think I don't go with the game of speculation because to be honest, this behavior that's very ritualistic and it's very uh, premeditated to me, Mm -hmm. I've covered it for so many decades. It really doesn't matter the names of the players, because no matter where they came from, from across Canada, they all knew the script. And the reason they knew the script, as far as I'm concerned, is that junior hockey has a way of performing masculinity in a very violent, degrading, misogynistic way. And uh, what they did in that room is, unfortunately, what junior hockey players have been alleged to have been doing for decades and decades. You've covered this for decades and decades. You've said that this one is different because of the media attention and because of the international uh, coverage the story is getting. Why? What makes this different? Is that a sign that things, however slowly, are changing? I think it is a sign. I think it's a positive sign. You know, I did my first story in Canada on sexual abuse in sport for the Toronto Star in 1992 about male coaches sexually abusing female athletes. I was a a bike racer and I was very lucky, had a wonderful club in the Mississauga Cycling Club, but I could see that many of the women and girls that who I raced against were not nearly as lucky. 
So uh, when I became a journalist uh, in 1990, I knew that I was going to cover sexual abuse in sport. So I've been in that world a long time, and it just has taken so many courageous people for so many decades. It's almost like building up a courageous mountain so you can clear this hurdle that very powerful people within sport have put in place for victims. The young women who I covered in my book, Crossing the Line, most of them left their towns. In fact, some of them left Canada because it was so terrible to be who they were. They were so disparaged by people in their own towns because it was a hockey town and they could not stay there any longer. Uh, This has really changed. But those young women suffer hugely now. And this case has been very traumatizing for many women who had the great misfortune of being in a room with a bunch of junior hockey players uh, in their past. What, if anything, has Hockey Canada said since we learned uh, that this would end in court? And what about the NHL? Hockey Canada has put in, I think, a very proactive board. I think they've recognized that the problem is deeply entrenched, that it's it's a cultural problem and you don't get rid of cultural problems simply by changing a board or wringing your hands, right? And so they they are doing, I think, very positive things at the rink level. When I was covering these stories uh, for my book, you know, you walk into a hockey rink and you can feel as a female, if there's a positive atmosphere there for young women Hmm. and girls, I mean, is there hockey for girls? How much? What kind of ice time are they getting? Are they getting equal billing? All of this really matters. So I think Hockey Canada knows that we need to change from the ground up. This is going to change not just at the board level, but at the grassroots level. And I think that they're committed. I, I love the fact that Canadian Tire is sponsoring just the women's program. And and Hockey Canada also is recognizing that women's para hockey is very important. Uh, we've had years and years of We've called it para hockey, but it's actually just been men's para hockey. Hmm. Now there's a really great program with women's para hockey. And while I don't think it's Hockey Canada at the helm, uh, the the Professional Women's Hockey League, founded, I'm happy to say, by Billie Jean King, who I just adored when I was an athlete, you know, in the 1970s. Hmm. You know, she's so much behind the Women's Professional Hockey League. And what we're going to start to see then is Hockey that is not defined by masculinity. Hockey will be defined by how good a hockey player you are and whether you're male or female makes no difference. And one other thing I noticed about the Women's Professional League, and you can find this on the APTN website, that's Aboriginal People's uh, Television website, at least three of the women players in the uh, PWHL are Indigenous women. That is a real change because, you know, those young women are very vulnerable sometimes Mm -hmm. in those small town hockey cultures. I think on the surface to a lot of people hearing about it, they can seem uh, two separate issues, right? A culture of uh, sexism, sexual assault in in junior men's hockey. And then, you know, on the other side, support for the women's game in general around the world. You're connecting the two. 
Yeah, I am connecting the two. I'm not saying if we have professional women's hockey, we're not going to have alleged gang rapes with junior players. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that to really change cultures, we have to change out of a gendered culture, right? So Mm. gender is how we imagine men and women to behave. And right now, junior hockey, and I would argue all male professional sports pretty much, are sold as a form of masculinity. That might be rather innocuous if it's professional volleyball, for instance. But hockey has in it an element of violence and aggression, and it's performed, right? So we have to understand that people perform gender, right? On the ice of every single hockey game is the performance of a kind of violent masculinity. So to imagine that the performance of violent masculinity is somehow going to stop as soon as the whistle stops is very naive. It doesn't stop. Those young males understand themselves because especially because they're teenagers. They're learning their own sexuality within junior hockey. And junior hockey does not allow you to develop feelings of tenderness and intimacy and empathy Mm. and all the sorts of things that you want people to bring into uh, uh, an intimate relationship. Part two of that are the terrible initiations and hazings that have occurred within junior hockey. So it could be that the the first sexual experience of of a junior hockey player is when he's a rookie and he is sexually, brutally sexually assaulted by a team of people who he looked up to and spent most of his life trying to emulate. And all of a sudden, they are doing the worst things possible to him. Not surprisingly, then, first of all, he buries it because it's very secret. And then secondly, if that's how he learns male sexuality, is not surprising that he replicates that brutal, violent, degrading sexuality in a group form uh, with his teammates later on. I know um, when I asked you what happened in that room in London, you gave a basic explanation of it. I'm sure you've read the full uh, complaint. I have as well. Like there's some really awful stuff in there, truly awful stuff in there. That's all going to be out when this goes to trial, right? What is that going to be like? And We've seen that kind of stuff in in several areas, and we've seen it in sport before, but maybe we haven't seen it with, you know, a a bunch of these players are going to be like legit, regular household name NHLers. This stuff is going to be in court about them. It's going to be very, very difficult. I've covered so many uh, day and residential school survivors, and you can't absorb these kinds of stories without keeping part of the story inside you. So everyone who is uh, witnessing this trial have to be prepared for this. You know, you can go to the Truth and Reconciliation website, the trc.ca, and watch some of the um, disclosures that First Nations survivors made just to prepare yourself for what probably is coming. For all sex abuse survivors, I think that your show should have a website and a, and an 800 number that they can call because this show alone is can be very triggering and very traumatizing. Mm-hmm. We'll do that. And I have heard from survivors since this story broke. They are extremely traumatized. On the other hand, it does feel finally that survivors are being listened to. And that's uh, feeling good 
for for them, but it doesn't mean that they're not having a lot of problems dealing day to day with with their memories. And I guess my last question is, what comes next? I know there's a, a press conference scheduled for February 5th. What are you expecting to see over this week? Will we see uh, those players surrender one by one and learn their identity the way we did with uh, Formington? Um, is everybody going to be staking out that police station? This is going to be uh, it's going to be a scene, for lack of a better term. I think it is going to be a scene, and I, you know, I, I'm not talking to the players, and I don't even know them, uh, uh, so I don't know what their plans are. But they, yeah, they have till February fifth. So London, Ontario, is definitely on the map in a way that was not planned when they planned this gala in 2018, and we shall see. I hope you know a better definition of the charges and uh, perhaps even a timeline for the the hearings. Laura, thank you so much for this. As always, it's uh, really good to discuss this within a larger context than just uh, focusing on uh, the allegations. So thank you. Thank you, Jordan, for, for having me. Laura Robinson, covering this stuff for decades now. If the content of this episode was traumatic for you, if the next few months as this case is opened will be traumatic, there is help available. You can go to endingviolencecanada.org to find a full list of sexual assault counseling services available in provinces across the country. That's endingviolencecanada.org. That was the big story. For more from us, including the previous discussion we had with Laura back before we knew all the stuff we know now, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca and type in her name in the search bar. If you've got ideas or feedback for us on this program, positive or negative, we like to hear it all. You can do so via email. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca is the address. Or you can call us and you can leave a voicemail. That number is 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available in absolutely every podcast player, and it is available on your smart speakers, car speakers, whatever speakers listen to you talk you can ask them to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.